is uh, what we'll read. I'll read from the New American Standard Bible. You see an outline uh, behind me. Uh, but a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They say, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebel and Ammon and Amlek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also will be joined with them and they will become a help to the children of Lot. Salah. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin, the torrent of Kishon. Which were, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who say, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm and fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O God. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone, whose name, that, that you alone, that you, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord. I apologize. Didn't read verse 18 well. Okay. Outline on the board, verses 1 through 5, there's a petition in the midst of crisis. Verse 1 is more of petition. Verses 2 through 5 describe the crisis more. But verses 1 through 5, a petition in the midst of a crisis. Verses uh, 6 through 8 will name the enemies. There are some 10 groups of people. Uh, if the New American Standard is divided properly, who are mentioned here. And then verses um, 9 through 12 praise that judgment will come on these people as in the days of the judges. And then verses 13 through 18 continues this prayer of judgment, but also mentions that all may know God's name. That all may know his name. Now, it begins a lot like Psalm 2. Psalm 2, Lord, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Christ and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and break their bonds Asunder, They want to break away from God's rule because they are oppressed and they are mistreated. 
And here it is the same kind of thing. Just like the nations were in rebellion to God, His King and His people in Psalm 2. You see the same thing in Psalm 83. But in verse 1, there are three requests made. Do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And do not be still. Three requests. And twice, God is mentioned. There are two different names for God. The first is Elohim. It is the first word of the psalm. Elohim. But the last word of the book, the last word of the verse, I should, verse, I should say, is a shortened form of Elohim, and that is El. So there... The RSV, read the RSV, uh, not the RSV, the RSV is like this too, but the ESV has this. Uh, how's that read, Isaiah, verse 1? <clears throat> o God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. So you see God is the first, and God is the last word. Now, this might be too subtle to be correct. But one writer suggested this. In the midst of this first five verses, Israel is pictured as surrounded by hostile enemies. But verse 1, with the first word being God and the last word, the structure itself suggests that God surrounds the psalmist. I think that's at least worth pointing out. Do not remain quiet. Psalm 28 began in a way similar to this. Let me, as I turn back to read Psalm 28, Psalm 28 verse 1, To you, O Lord, I will call my rock, do not be deaf to me, for if you remain silent, I become like those, I'll become like those who go down to the pit. But he says, To you, O God, I call my rock, do not be deaf, for if you remain silent, I'll become like those who go to the pit. Let me let me make a personal plea. And this is a personal selfish plea. Um, in checking back at my podcast that were listened to least frequently is Psalm 28, 29. And so those podcasts need some love. If, if, <laughs> if you want to go back and download them, if you want to find another device and download them a second time. But anyway, but in both of these, Psalm 28, Psalm 83, a plea for God. God not to be quiet, not to be silent, and not be still. Now, that particular word for still was also used in Psalm 76 and verse 8. Psalm 76 and verse 8. It says, You cause, the hev you cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. Now, think about that. God sent judgment from heaven. 
when he happened, the earth feared and the earth was still. Now the earth is in an uproar and heaven, God, seems still. And he is begging for the circumstance to be more like Psalm 76 and verse 8 than the way it is in Psalm 83 and verse 1. Now, would you notice about the enemies? The enemies are described in verses 2 and 5 as being enemies of God. Notice in verse 2, For behold, your enemies, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you exalt themselves. In verse 5, For they have conspired together with one mind against you they make a covenant. So in verse 2 and verse 5, these enemies are pictured as enemies of God. In verse 3 and in verse 4, they are pictured as Israel's enemies. So their opposition to God and their opposition to the people of God. In verse 3, they make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. And they say, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. If we are walking in God's will, if we are seeking to do what's right in His sight and are following Him and others are opposing us because we are following Him, then those who are opposing us are ultimately opposing Him. The word uproar is used several times in the Bible that is significant. But one of the times this term, this is in 83 verse 2, the term uproar, the nations made an uproar, it's used in Psalm 46 verse 3, Psalm 46 and verse 6. In Psalm 46, that is, uh, we will not fear uh, though uh, the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. Psalm 74, verse 3. The word translated roar in the New American Standard in 46.3. Same word, uproar, in 83 and verse 2. In verse 6, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melt. This is my point. In 46, the nations make an uproar, but God silences that uproar. But here, the nations are making an uproar, and God is silent. He is begging God in verse 1, do not be silent. The nations, the nations are making an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. Now, some of you have a different translation in verse 2 for exalted themselves. What do you have there? Yes, he has raised their heads. Okay, raised their heads or lifted up their head. Some versions have. But whether it's raised or lifted up, the literal word is heads. And sometimes 
That is a signal of pride and arrogance. When Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges 8, 28, they did not lift up their head anymore. And the phrase is also used in this kind of military way in Zechariah 1 and verse 21. But a defeated group of people did not lift up their head. Here the enemy is making an uproar. They are exalting themselves. They are lifting up their head. They are raising their heads. And in verse 3, they make shrewd plans against your people. They make shrewd plans against your people. And the word that is translated here, shrewd plans, it is connected with Genesis 3.1 and the serpent was more crafty. It's the same root word. The serpent was more crafty than any beast the Lord had made. The enemy's plans are ultimately satanic. They make shrewd plans against your people. They make shrewd plans against your people. They conspire together against your anointed. In verse 3, we're going to see a conspiracy against God's treasured people. In verse 5, that word conspired is also going to be used. It's a very rare word, really. It's only used four other times in the book of Psalms, but it's used twice here in Psalm 83. Um, it is interesting that there are a couple of passages where God is pictured as conspiring or plotting against the nations. But here it is the nations plotting and conspiring against God's people. Uh, Isaiah 19, 17 is one of those passages where God is pictured doing this. In verse 4, they say, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation. Twice in this psalm, the enemy is quoted. Verse 4, verse 12. The enemy is going to be quoted. And here they say, Come and let us Wipe them out as a nation. One of the writers referred to the fact that the word come, let us, both of those words are used in Genesis 11, verses 3 and 4. Come, let us make a tower that reaches to heaven. The same evil intent of men to promote and exalt themselves in Genesis 11, verse 3 is seen here in Psalm 83. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Look for the word name in Psalm 83. The word name appears here in verse 4. It will appear in verse 16. It will appear in verse 18. And we'll try to come back and wrap those up in just a moment. In verse 5, they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. Tate, in his commentary on uh, Psalms 51 through 100 in the Word Biblical series, says 
that this is the only passage in the Old Testament uh, that speaks about making a covenant against someone else. And here, the nations, the nations that are going to be listed in just a moment, are making a covenant against God. They're making a covenant against the God who made a covenant with Israel. The word covenant is the same word to refer to God's covenant with Israel. But here is the nations making a covenant in conspiracy against God. What questions do you have? What ideas do you have there on verses 1 through 5? Okay. Verse 6. Mention several enemies. We probably won't talk a whole lot about all these enemies. If you've got a question about any of them, feel free to ask, okay? But the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also will be joined with them and they will become a help to the children of Lot. Instead of they will become a help, do any of your translations have dip, something different in verse 8? The strong arm. Strong arm. To show, the word arm is the literal translation. The New American Standard translates this kind of as an idiom that, that to be an arm to someone is to be their help, to be their support. And that's the idea uh, that is conveyed in the New American Standard Bible. But do any of those, many of these nations, you know something about? You know something about Assyria. Assyria was, was kind of on a level that, that, that these other nations worked. I mean, Assyria was an overarching world power. Most of these are nations that surround the land of Israel that were foes, uh, that were enemies. Um, you know about the Philistines. You know about the Amalekites and the Edomites. Any of them you want to ask a question about? Who were the Hagrites? Okay. You know, I was about to do I was about to do something that one of the Greek teachers I had in school said. He, he would he would come to class, he says, Do you all have any questions about what we're supposed to read? And it didn't take me long to figure out if we didn't have a question to ask him, he was gonna have a question to ask us. So if you didn't understand it or you didn't think you understood it, you better ask him. So I was thinking about pulling that and asking you all who the Hagarites are. Uh, but as I give that introduction, before I give an answer, do any of you know what would be your response? Well, I've got a reference. <laughs> okay. To uh, these were some people dwelling to the east of Palestine. Uh, in the time of Saul, the tribe of Reuben made war. Okay, can you read about that in 1 Chronicles 5, 
verse 10 and verses 18 through 20. Now, at first glance, you know, you see the name, particularly in this context, and I think maybe they are descendants of Abraham through Hagar. And that may be correct. They may be descendants of Abraham through Hagar. But who was Abraham's son through Hagar? Ishmael. They're already mentioned here. Um, and you, you also see other nations related to Israel in close proximity to Israel. For example, the Edomites were descendants of who? Esau. The Moabites were descendants of who? Lot. Moabites are mentioned in verse 6. Then verse 8 just mentions the children of Lot. Who would be, who else would be mentioned? Who else would be included in that children of Lot besides Moab? Ammon. Ammon. So, uh, boy, there are some references to the Hagrites. Um, often they are viewed as descendants of Abraham through Hagar. But we don't have much information. Of, of all in that group, uh, they are one of the most difficult to identify. The second most difficult or right up there with the Hagrites would be what other group? Gebel. Yeah, Gebel. NIV says Biblos. Yes. The, the, that is a reading, I believe, John, based on the Septuagint. And that would be, um, yeah, I think that reading is based on the Septuagint. The term Gebel is used in Ezekiel 27, verse 9, I believe, in connection with Tyre. Ezekiel 27 and verse 9. Let me look at my references. Yes. And it's also, um, they are also mentioned... Maybe mention Joshua 13, verse 5. Gary? Uh, I always kind of thought of the Edomites and the Moabs as kind of like cousins to the Israelites. Why? What happened? Do we know what happened that they became enemies? Well. Other than like with Esau. Between his brother there. Some have said, and, I, and I, I'm not doubting this, but I have not counted up every reference. But that the Edomites are the most persistent, persistently mentioned enemy throughout the Old Testament. If you count up every every time nations are opposed to Israel, Edom receives more mentions than anyone else. Uh, yes. They were all related to Israel. And in Deuteronomy 2, as we read not long ago in our daily reading, when Israel came into the land of Canaan, when they were coming to the land of Canaan, they were told not to invade the territory of Esau because God had given the Edomites their portion, not to invade the territory of the Ammonites and Moabites because God had given them their territory. In 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, they are attacked by the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. 
And Jehoshaphat called the people together to the temple and they fasted and they prayed. And he said, Lord, when we came into this land, you told us not to invade their land. And this is how they are repaying us for the kindness that we showed them. And he's asking God to judge them on that occasion. So, Gary, what it was specifically that happened, I, I don't know. Some have suggested that the relationship between the Israelites and the Edomites is a continuation of the conflict between Jacob and Esau. Um, others have made the point, Derek Kidner does this, he says, and I, I don't necessarily buy this. I don't know if verses 6 through 8 is meant to be one historical circumstance. I think it's probably just a picture of all Israel's enemies, past and present. But he says, if we can relate this to one historical circumstance, that circumstance is best in 2 Chronicles 20. And I want to show you why he says that. If you look over to 2 Chronicles 20, just a second... One of the reasons is because you have those mention of these three enemies that are fighting Israel. Three of the ten enemies that are mentioned right here in Psalm 83. But there's something else that led Kidner to make this statement. In verse 14, after Jehoshaphat has prayed his prayer, and this is a beautiful chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. And uh, someone uh, avoid the other night quoted this passage to me uh, at y'all's house, Gary and Debbie. And, um, but in verse 14, in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. Remember, this was a psalm by one of the people of Asaph. So he related to the occasion, not only because you have several of these enemies fighting against Israel, but the answer the Lord gives is through a descendant of Asaph. And I just wanted to bring that out. Okay. Anything, anything else right there? Verses 9 through 12 are going to mean something, especially to you all who've been in our judges class uh, on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And I'm going to ask you in just a second, we're going to read it again, give you time to think, who are these people associated with? Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the Torian of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Now, what particular judges and their time is this dealing with when they face these enemies, Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna, and Sisera and Jabin. Whose time did they face these enemies? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Debbie, <laughs> did you volunteer? 
Gideon. Gideon, they faced four of these enemies. Oreb and Zeb. Zeb and Zalmu. They killed Oreb and Zeb. Oreb at the wide crest of Zeb. What? Is right? Oreb at the rock of... Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb at the wide crest of Zeb. Again, what are the odds? What are the odds that they would have killed them at that place? But they killed Oreb and Zeb, Zeb and Zalmunna, and then Sisera and Jabin are with who? Deborah. Deborah. Deborah and Barak. But I want you to notice something, and I won't tell you. This is so obvious. And I read this text over and over, but until one of the commentaries pointed out, and only one of the ones, one of the 10 or 12 I read, made this point, and it thawed on me. How could I miss this? Who is not mentioned here? Gideon, Deborah, and Barak. He mentions the enemies by name, but he doesn't mention the judges. Now, what, what's the point of that? The point of that is to emphasize God's deliverance. God's deliverance. They are, in a sense, incidental. Or even a footnote, an asterisk to the story. He's begging God, you deal with them as with Midian. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin. And make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. One of the problems of the people asking for a king is because they were asking for a human ruler to do what God had been doing for them all along. They would cry out to God in the time of crisis. God would raise up a deliverer to rescue them. And now they are looking for a king to go out and fight their battles. You notice God does not even mention the human rulers because this, or the psalmist doesn't, because this deliverance is from God. Deal with them as with Midian. Now, everybody here knows something about that story. Gideon goes out to fight the Midianites. Gideon goes out with 32,000 against an army of at least 135,000. God says there are too many. Whoever's afraid, go home. Go home. Over two-thirds of Gideon's army goes home. He's left with 10,000. God says that's still too many. He used 300. He says, with these, I'm going to deliver Israel. Deal with them as with Midian. They may feel outnumbered. As all these nations are pictured as gathered together against the Lord and against his people, deal with them as with Midian, just like you delivered the people then who didn't have the numbers of the opposition. You deal with them again. Deal with them. Now, this is also when we were going over Judges 4 and 5, for those of you who were in class, the Kishon River, sometimes the year, it's, it's barely a brook. I mean... But in the rainy time or, or time of heavy rainfall, it can overflow. That's apparently what happened here. And verse 9 only adds weight to that. Judges 5 particularly seem to demonstrate that. Judges 5 around verses 19 through 20 seem to indicate that. But here, the torrent of Kishon, it became a mighty river and it made all 
the advantage that Sisera had with his 900 iron chariots, it made it meaningless. The Lord did that. And just like in verse 4, the enemy is pictured as talking to themselves in verse 12. Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. But, but God has defeated enemies like this in the past. And he's begging God to do the same thing right now. It does a lot of good sometimes to pray with an open Bible. To pray asking God to do right now what he has done in the past. And that's in a lot of ways what Psalm 83 verses 9 through 12 is doing. It's taking these deliverances of the past and asking that God reenact them in the present. What else? What other ideas? Okay. Verse 13 is going to continue this description of judgment upon the wicked. And he says, Oh my God. You notice most times he has spoken in first person plural, but here he speaks in first singular. Oh my God, make them, the enemy, like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. The first of the Psalms, we have seen the chaff as a picture of the wicked in Psalm 1 verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So again, Psalm 1 verse 4. Psalm 35. Psalm 35 and verse 5. This is a prayer for judgment upon the wicked. Psalm 35 is one of the longest sustained in precatory prayers. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving on. And so this is the same thing that is asked in 83 verse 13 about these enemies. May they be like whirling dust. May they be a chaff before the wind. May they be in verse 12, 14 like a fire that burns the forest like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. Now, yesterday in our Bible reading was Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9. And Deuteronomy 9 opens up with a description of God as a consuming fire. Now, is that thought of God as a consuming fire, is that a terrifying thought? Or is that a comforting thought? In different texts, it means different things. It means different things depending on your relationship with God. But in Deuteronomy 9, it is an assurance. It is a ground of confidence that God is a consuming fire. Because God is a consuming fire, you can have the confidence to go in and fight nations that are mightier and stronger than you are. Because he is a consuming fire. The same thing that gives terror to the unbeliever is a cause of assurance to God's people. And God is like a fire. He begs God to be like a fire that burns the forest. And a flame that sets the mountains on fire. And in verse 15, pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with the storm. 
Pursue them, God. And God here is pursuing them as an enemy combatant in war. You remember this word, pursue, is the same word um, used in Psalm 23 uh, that um, the goodness and loving kindness of the Lord will follow me, pursue me all the days of my life. Again, there, that pursuit is a good thing. Here, this pursuit is a bad thing from, from the standpoint of the enemy. Pursue them with the tempest. Terrify them with the storm. Now, we've just read in a case, in the case of, uh, of the, the battle between Deborah and Barak and the forces of Sisera and Jabin, that was a time when God used the stars, remember, to fight against Israel. He sent apparently that flash flood that made the Kishon a torrent. He used a storm to terrify the enemy. And he's begging God, terrify them with your storm. In the ancient Near East, many of these nations would have worshipped Baal or, or their equivalent of Baal, who they believe controlled the storm. But here the psalmist is begging the Lord to terrify them with the storm because it is the Lord who controls this. It's the Lord who controls this. In verse 16, fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. We said the word name is key in this psalm. It's used in verse 4 where the enemy wanted to wipe out Israel's name. The enemy wanted to destroy Israel's name from the earth. But now it's used in verse 16. As the psalmist is asking that these people who wanted to destroy Israel's name, that they may seek your name. He has prayed for their judgment in verses 13 through 15. And even the first of verse 16. He will again in verse 17. It sounds like he's begging that they be destroyed, that they be utterly crushed. But if there are any who can be turned to God, he prays that they might seek your name. God's judgments are ultimately for the purpose of leading people to Him. Of leading people to Him. Psalm 58 closed this way in verses 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees your vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges the earth. People are going to see your judgment. And it's going to lead them to know there is a God who judges the earth. Fill them with this dishonor that they may seek your name. In verse 18, that you may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are most high over all the earth. And I realize why I read verse 18 so badly a moment ago. I read it because I left out that last part. It's on, it's, it's on the top of my name. And I said, there's something more to this psalm. And I didn't look at the next section. So that's why I read it so badly. Apologize. Well, Psalm 87 mentions some of those 
enemies. Yes. In, in connection with acknowledging God. Absolutely. And in, in, in picturing some of them as being converted and ultimately being assimilated into God's people. Yes. So that's right. And God's goal is ultimately, the reason he made the covenant with Abraham is that I might bless all nations through you. That might bless all nations through you. Now, we have said to the point of redundancy that when you find the personal pronoun used, that it is for emphasis. And the personal pronoun you is used in verse 18. It is used in verse 18. That, that they may know that you alone. Now, I, I wrote down, I was looking at this verse and I said, if this is literally translated, this is the way it would be translated. That you, your name, O Lord, yours alone. I mean, notice the emphasis on you. That you, your name, O Lord, yours alone is the Lord. God bring judgment to show all people that you are the Lord and you are most high over all the earth. The most common description of Baal in Ugaritic literature from those who have read it more extensively than I have, they state that the most common description is he is described as the most high. But it is not Baal who is the most high. It is Yahweh. If we, if we had a better grasp, and, and, I, and I do put myself in that category, if we had a better grasp of ancient Near Eastern religion, I think we would see how frequently the Bible is making statements about God that would have been controversial in that culture to show them it is God, it is our God who is these things and not your God, your Baals who are God. This does not enlighten you about the verse. But sometimes events like this happen that are cemented in our mind. Um, I can remember one Saturday morning in Tampa in the back of a Walmart trying to hand out Bibles. And, um, well, let me just tell you what happened and you tell me who I was talking to. Um, he quoted me this verse. Verse 18. Um, but he quoted it from an older translation which said that you may know that you alone whose name is Jehovah. Guess who I was talking to? Mormon. <laughs> Mormon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he was very kind. He says, I appreciate what you're doing. He says, I, <laughs> and I knew he tried to do the same thing, I'm sure. But we had a discussion and uh, I'd say that I guess the only benefit you might get from that is to know this is a key passage of theirs. And what I would just say is that some of those Old Testament passages, and I don't remember what I said that day, 
or how much I got to say. But the, some, of the, some of the things attributed to Jehovah in the Old Testament are attributed to Jesus in the New. Any questions on those verses? Anything? Okay. I thought that outline was helpful um, even though there is a close connection between the themes of 9 through 12 and 13 through 18. I think it's, I think that's a good point to make a break and uh, I think that's a legitimate break to make. Now, as we close, Look a little bit about Psalm 83 and Christ. Psalm 83 and Jesus. One of the points in verse 3 and verse 5, when it says they conspire together. The word that's used in the Greek translation, and it's the Septuagint right here, is used of the leaders conspiring against Jesus in John 11.53. In John 12, verse 10, they're conspiring against Jesus and even conspiring to kill Lazarus because because of him many are believing in Jesus. Another point that struck me in verse 4, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Now, the word come and let us that are used again in Septuagint I know those words might be used together quite a bit but they are used together in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard for example when they and it's a parable Lord willing that we will touch upon soon in our studies of Matthew but they say here is the son Come, here is the heir. Come, let us kill him. So just as they say this of Israel, let us wipe out their name from the earth, they will say that of Jesus. Come, let's kill him. And that is a picture of what's going to happen to Christ in Matthew 21. That's an allegory and a, and a, and a fascinating one at that. Um, there are a couple of other points that I've got, but I want to give you some time too. And you always bring in some things that I haven't thought of. But what, what, what thoughts do you have, Mary? Um, verse 1, Jesus was silent amidst his enemies in the trials. Okay. Pretty much all the time, for, just for a few comments he made. Okay. People were trying to get him to... <laughs> I had so. included those verses, but in a little different way. And so let's hang on to that just a second, Mary, but that's a good point. Jesus himself fulfilled this well he doesn't answer that's good that is real good were you thinking about the young children singing 
Well, not at this point. You know, I was thinking about a Sunday night, but but uh, there's another use I'm trying to make. I'll make of this in a second. We'll tie in what Mary said. So, well, what else? What what other things you got? It's just striking to me that in verse 16 that that one of the reasons this is to be done to these enemies is that they may seek your name and. And, and that's the reason Jesus came. Yes. Uh, like, like Luke 2, when Simeon uh, is filled with the Spirit at the birth of Jesus, uh, when he's brought in, uh, he, he proclaims that he is to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Yes. And the glory of your people, Israel. Yes. That's right. That's right. And we will tie that in. Tie that in in just a second. So y'all are mentioning my points, uh, some things. Um, I've been teaching the end of Jesus' life with the kids, and verse 5 strikes me. They conspire with one accord, where we had Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians that normally would have been each odds. They've become united against their common enemy. Yes, that's right. And so not only are they conspiring, but they are conspiring and uniting as well. Uh, and that is true. I mean, when the Pharisees and Herodians, and I don't know if I spell uniting correct. That's right. But, but, but when the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and say, should we pay tribute to Caesar? Now, we don't really know much about the Herodians. But, but you know, they may have been on different sides of that issue. But they're looking to get Jesus to say, yeah, it's unlawful to get him into trouble. And uh, when the Sadducees are throwing out questions about the resurrection, they may have thrown out questions that the Pharisees couldn't answer because after Jesus answers that question, they, even the Pharisees who are still going to oppose him, they said, what's a good answer? <laughs> uh, and so you're right, but they all unite against him. But, but some of you are saying some things that I, I wanted to kind of pull together here. Um, one of the things, when it talks about God as being the most high over all the earth, this word high, um, the word most high in verse 18, that is a noun or it's talking, it's a description of God. Most, it's, it's, it's using, it can be used as an adjective of God, the most high God. But it is connected to the verb, the Greek word that's used connected to the verb lifted up. When Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So just as God is the most high, Jesus is going to be the most high. Jesus is going to be lifted up. And particularly in John 12, 32 and 33, that is the cross. That is the cross. And Mary mentioned Psalm 83, 1 and 2 about Jesus being silent in his trial. But I'll tell you what I also thought about in that. In Psalm 83, 1 and 2, it, the enemies are making an uproar. The enemies are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And it looks like 
God is silent. The Father is silent. Jesus is silent. The Father is silent. But ultimately, through the cross, God defeated the enemies of His people just like He defeated Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna, Sisera and Jabin. And then tying in what John said, and this also ties in with verse 18, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God. Just as Psalm 83, the purpose of God's judgments is that all peoples and all nations may seek Him so they conspire against Jesus at the cross and unite in that. They say, come, let us destroy the air. He is lifted up on the cross. And when he's lifted up, his enemies make an uproar. But, he, but God is silent, it seems. God is silent, but he's not silent. He's showing something of his mercy and grace at the cross. The greatest display ever given. Is there at the cross. That at the feet of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that all might seek your name. So again, you can preach the gospel story of the rejection, the death, the resurrection of Jesus through Psalm 83. Just like you can through so many passages. What other thoughts you got? Okay, guys. I enjoyed that psalm. I hope you all did. I, I trust you all did. It's your persistent attendance shows. And uh, Ray, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? Our merciful Father, we humbly bow before you to offer you our honor and our praise as our Father and as our God. Father, we are so thankful to you that you love us and that you care enough for us to not only provide the things that we need in this life, but that you provided a way for us to live with you forever. Thank you, Father, so much for the word that you've left for us as an instruction on who you are and and how we can honor and please you. Father, we ask that you would help each of us to use this word to to improve our own lives and to to use it as we have opportunity to speak to others. Father, be with each of us that we might lift you up and and praise you and to give you honor for all those that we come in contact with that one day they might also see you in us and be interested in being children of yours as well. Help us, Father, to continue throughout the rest of this week to be that shining light that you would have us to be. And one day we look forward, Father, be your will that we might all gather together and live with you. We ask through Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.